Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from the beautiful Pacific Northwest at JB1 Studios, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call and we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business in tech questions. Linux advocate above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener, Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah J. Chalaya. So, first live broadcast from JB1. Huge thanks to the team at Jupiter Broadcasting, and we have a really exciting show planned for you guys. Really excited to talk to you guys. We got our phone lines fixed, so we'll be taking your calls live on the air. Now, go back with me a couple of years, back when I was in high school. I was part of the networking class, and me and a few friends started a trend You see, while the rest of the school was interested in the new Xbox and Halo, my friends and and I, we set out to build our own PCs. And this is back before that was the popular thing to do. So we'd spend hours on Newegg putting the pieces together and deciding on what we were going to buy. And to be fair, we probably spent more time than we should on cases because at that time, the case was a reflection of what kind of computer user you were. If you were a gamer, if you were a workhorse, Our favorite thing to talk about, by far, was processors. Everyone fell essentially into one or two clubs. You were either part of the, I want to buy a CPU that I can hack on and I can get the most power out of and I can overclock and I can tweak and I'll take the great price while I'm at it. Or you were part of the, I'm okay with paying a little bit more for the absolute best. Now, the last few years, it seems, Intel's largest uh, competition has been Intel themselves. Now, I'm an expert in my own opinion, so in my personal opinion, there hasn't been any real competition to the Intel processor since 2012. That is until now, because now we have Ryzen. Now, I'm fully aware that there are those of you that are out there that are very tech-savvy, and you've already watched hundreds of YouTube videos, and you've read all of the reports, and you've looked at all the benchmarks, And you probably have a a deeper technical understanding of the specifications of Ryzen than I do. Those of you who already care, who already know, you know if you're buying it or not. Since episode one of this program, I have been getting emails, telegrams from a bunch of you asking if we would cover Ryzen. So this hour on the Ask Noah show, we're going to do just that. We're going to talk about Ryzen, what it is. What the questions, the question, I guess, is really, should you buy it? That's the question that I would be asking. And uh, that's a question that I've gotten from a lot of you is, am I going to buy it? Or should you just stick with Intel? Of course, if you have specific questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. And let's start with the basics. What is Ryzen? Ryzen is a AMD CPU that's aimed at the server, desktops, workstations, media center PCs, and all-in-ones. It's a high-performance processor. Their base models 
feature eight cores and 16 thread processing at 3.4 gigahertz with a 20 megabyte cache. Now, what does all that mean for those of you who don't speak geek? Ryzen is a brain for your computer that aims to compete with the industry standard Intel. The question is, does it really compete? And more importantly, should you buy it? Well, competition is always a good thing. If Ryzen did nothing more than just prompt Intel to make a better chip, I believe we'd all be better off. The exciting thing is, though, Ryzen actually does a lot more than that. Ryzen is actually delivering much more than that. At AltaSpeed, we're always a fan of creative cost-saving solutions that don't sacrifice quality. That's a lot of what I found Ryzen is. The entry-level Ryzen CPU of the 7 Series is the 1700. Now, it's available right now on Newegg for $329. If you are looking for a place to get started with Ryzen, the 1700 is probably what most people are buying right now. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, we have the 1800X. Now, the 1800X is pitched as a competitor to Intel's i7-6950. There is no doubt in my mind or anyone else's that the Intel 6950 i7 is unquestionably a better CPU. Nobody is disputing that. But as of this episode, Newegg has the i7-6950 from Intel listed for a retail price of $1,649 versus the Ryzen 7 Series 1800X, which is $469. Now, depending on what site you trust for benchmarking, you're looking at about a 10% performance degradation from the, uh, down from the i7-6950 to the Ryzen 1800X. But think about that, people. A 10% performance hit for a 70% reduction in cost. That's huge. Oh, but Noah, why aren't you talking about the Ryzen 3 series and the Ryzen 5 series? Well, to be completely honest with you, I don't see the appeal. You see, the Ryzen 5 series, the 1500X, is 189 Again, I'm getting these prices off a of Newegg. Versus the i5-7500, which is the Intel equivalent of the 1500X, and that comes in at 199 So at that point, I'll just take the tried-and-true Intel. And again, it depends on what your benchmark, what be benchmarks you're looking at. I was using um, userbenchmark.com, and the 7500 still has about an 8% performance increase. But the bottom line is, uh, I, you know, I'm not an early adopter of things. I'm an LTS guy. I like to use the tried-and-true, even if it's a few years old. So there's no way I'm jumping onto a brand new board with a brand new chip to save 10 bucks. That's just not something I'm going to personally do. Again, open phones, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Let's see here. Who do we have? We're going to start with Jim from Virginia. Jim called in last week, and uh, we weren't able to take his call, so we'll take it this week. Jim, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. It's good to be here, Noah. Thank you. Um, How can we help today? The, the question I wanted to ask last week and this week is if what you know about the availability of Windows-free security cameras, uh, preferably Ethernet-based, that can do live streaming to via OBS to YouTube or something of that nature. 
we've been through several iterations, and uh, boy, it's uh, a lot harder to find one of those than I thought it would be. It really is. A lot of the, you know, web-based cameras are using ActiveX, so they require Internet Explorer. Uh, a lot of the other ones have specific software. I'll start with this. When it comes to IP security cameras, are you, are you you're familiar with the ONVIF standard? I am. In fact, uh, the current camera we're wrestling with theoretically has that, but it hasn't done us a whole lot of good. Yeah, and that's that's the real problem. Is so the, the, for those of you that don't know, the ONVIF standard is a standard for IP security cameras, supposedly making them interoperable with other vendors and you know and manufacturers. So you can buy an ONVIF security camera. You should technically be able to use it with Zoneminder or or Blue Cherry or buy a, a ONVIF standard DVR and use it. The reality is they don't always work across platform. So I'll tell you what I found. I have found that the TP links tend to work with everything I have thrown at them. I've been able to use them on Blue Cherry and Zoneminder as well as TP-Link's integrated DVR. Another thing that I have I have looked at, and I know um, a good friend of mine, Chris, and he's in the Ask Noah Telegram group, which you can join at ask, uh, telegram.asknoahshow.com. He is using the Ubiquity uh, Unify cameras. Now, the upside, the positive side of these Ubiquity Unify cameras is they will work. It will work right out of the box. It's a very high-quality camera. In fact, he is doing it over a VPN, so it will work on low bandwidth even. The downside is, did you not tell me that you were using them with OBS? I would like to use it with OBS, yes. So something in, that can stream to YouTube. Yeah. So what I would do in that case is I would look for a camera that puts out an RTMP feed. Um. And there are a couple of there are a couple of different options. I think the there there is uh, there is one that's uh, I think it's called the SRICAM S R I C A M A P O three or A P O O three I think something like that. And I believe that one is a it's a it's a camera that sends out to RTMP. Here's the downside to RTMP cameras. I have yet to find one that I think is is a very high professionally built camera. Most of if you want a very high quality. RTMP camera, what you're going to end up doing is buying one of those like FM user RTMP encoders and plugging an HDMI camera into it. Does that, does that, I, I know that's not a great answer. Does, does that kind of answer your question? Well, at least uh, shows me slightly off the, the course that we're on to consider some other things. So that's a help. I tell you what, we actually have a camera here at the studio that we use that uh, Chris bought, I think last year or the year before. And um, we had it successfully imported into OBS, and it was not a very expensive camera. I will put that in the show notes. So if you uh, if you download the show notes for this week, I will have that available for you. Uh, let's see here. Who, do, who else do we have? We have Chaz in New York. Chaz, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How can we help today? Hey, Noah. Great to be back. So uh, I just got home from work, and I watched the Linux Action Show on my NVIDIA Shield which, by the way, it's almost a good thing it's wrapping up because I tend to immediately put anything I see on that show on my Best Buy credit card, and I can't afford a $10,000 Dell. Um, but uh, I wanted to kind of talk about one of the things that uh, you and Chris brought up with how you think Mark Shuttleworth may be looking to position Canonical into a position where it could be sold. And you kind of proposed two uh, scenarios, one being Dell, which would make sense given the setting of the farm on Linux these days. And you mm -hmm. also kind of propose maybe Microsoft would want to go for it, okay, which is 
you know, for their own nefarious purposes. And I'm just kind of wondering, what do you think Linux looks like in a world where that has happened? Does the Linux community embrace a Microsoft-based Linux distro? Does Microsoft even bother to create a Linux distro? What rises up in Ubuntu's stead without, uh, with Microsoft running? I was just wondering if you could expand on what you guys were talking about earlier, because that's sure. interesting. Sure. So uh, we'll start with this. Microsoft is a software company. They make their money off of software. And I've said on this program as well as before the program even started that I believe Microsoft is on a path to sell software as a service. I don't think they are making money by selling copies of Windows for $399 in Office Max and Office Depot anymore. And so how does Microsoft stay relevant? Well, there's a couple different ways. One is I think that they need to attack that developer market. They have seen people bleeding off of the Windows platform to jump over to Mac and Linux. And as that has continued to happen, they tried to integrate Ubuntu, the Bash shell, into Windows to make it more friendly to developers. And the reality is well, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of uh, reaction on the Internet when that happened. But truth be told, nothing has really changed. I still am not seeing developers coming back over to Windows because Bash is there. In fact, the people that are, prefer Windows to begin with are still doing their development as a staged into Linux boxes. So I don't think that's really solved it for them. Then on the other end of the spectrum, if I'm not looking at the desktop, I'm looking at the, the cloud aspect, Ubuntu has dominated the server infrastructure. And the one thing that uh, that Microsoft could bring to the table is is a lot of support, ready, available support right here in the U.S. where you have, you know, you, you have a, in the Microsoft store, I can walk in and say, I need to, I want to get a server running up for my, set up for my small business or something like that. And Microsoft says, okay, sign here on the dotted line, pay our, you know, $500 or whatever. And now here's the 1-800 number. If you need any problems, give us a call. Um, I think that's a way that Microsoft can participate in, in, in becoming more relevant. And I think they need Linux to do that. And I think if they don't make a change somewhere, whether that is buy out Ubuntu or that is come up with their own system or that is start selling Windows and Office 365 and all of that, as a service, if they don't find a way to do that, I don't know if they're going to be around much longer, at least not as a as the giant software influence that they are now. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you very much for the call. We appreciate having you. Let's go to Michael. He's in Toronto. Michael, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How can we help? Michael? Hey, Noah. Hi there. How Sorry are you? That. No worries. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. How can we help? Um, my question today is, it, it kind of arose because I've switched uh, a friend of mine out of, um, I, he was just curious, and I ended up, you know, after years I went to his house and I fixed his computer uh, by taking Windows off it. So I wanted to ask you, because um, I kind of brushed up against this awkwardly while um, sort of making some recommendations, how do you approach um, switching someone who has vastly different interests and needs that than your own, like providing um, a perspective on, you know, reasons to switch to Linux, of course. So a lot of it being uh, all the things that are popping up in the news from exploits to uh, backdoors and all sorts of things that people are concerned about, especially ISPs. Um, now that there's been, uh, I mean, of course, Canada has different laws and we're lucky to have them, but we still do, or still do, sorry, run a lot of our traffic through the U.S. So I just, I wondered what your thoughts were on uh, how you, sort of connect with somebody on that level when you don't have um, other means to do so, like interest. Sure, 
Sure. So I'll, I'll start with this. The first thing I do is you always want to get to understand your user. And that becomes double true when you make your money off of understanding your user and being able to provide them the solutions that they might not even know that they need, right? So that's one of the reasons that I am an Ubuntu user today. It's not because out of the entire Linux ecosystem, I, I organically chose to wound up on Ubuntu. Quite honestly, I think all things being equal, I would probably still be a Fedora user, maybe today an Arch user. The reason I stick with Ubuntu is because I think it is one of the best distributions for beginners to start on, and it is powerful enough, and it is flexible enough to to keep going even after you have even after you've moved on. Um, and so, because of that, because I need to be able to understand how to do all of the things that a user would want to do, and because I need to be able to figure those things out. I try to put myself in the same situations that I would find users in, even if I don't have any organic need for that. I'll give you an example. I have an HP scanner. I never use my HP scanner for anything. I take, I use a, a program called ScanBot on Android. The reason that I have an HP scanner, the reason that I test it with every new version of Ubuntu, the reason I test apps on Ubuntu is so that when a user approaches me and says, I need a scanner to scan my, my documents, I have an answer for them. And so I guess my answer to you is this. Talk to your user, find out what your user's needs are, figure them out yourself, and then you're able to help that user. And I'll, I'll tell you a dirty little secret. The reality is it's not as diverse as we might like, it, like to think that it is. The world is not that big of a place. Most computer users genuinely want the same thing, and every once in a while you'll have an oddball case, and that's pretty easy just to Google or make a form post. Again, phone lines one 450 no, that's one 450 Back to this Ryzen thing, a couple other things to know. At the moment, they don't have a server or workstation CPU. So for me, it's a little disappointing. And I'll probably be a lot more interested in Ryzen when those launch. Now, in parallel workloads, you're going to see the Ryzen chips perform pretty well. Gamers like myself, and I'll fight you at LAN, no scope you 1v1, what's up? Gamers are going to appreciate this. But Ryzen is not going to be very good at intercore communication. So for example, if you have one core that needs to access memory that another core is using, it's going to be slower if it's not scheduled well. Now, with an Intel chip, you can access dirty data on the cache with a trivial penalty, but accessing dirty data on Ryzen is going to be downright terrible. So if you're a software developer, if you're building software on Ryzen, it's going to be more efficient to get a higher throughput. But on the other hand, if you're running a multi-threaded database application, you're again, you're going to be better off just sticking with Intel. I'd like to get your thoughts on on uh, Ryzen. If anyone out there has one, if you've used one, what you think about it, one 450 noaa That's one 450 Give me a call. Let me know your thoughts. The truth is, I originally thought that this product was going to be far more tailored towards gamers, and thus Linux would be excluded. But in my hours of meticulous research of every day this week, researching articles, watching videos so that you don't have to, in the comments, every single time I see people saying that they are building Linux workstations with Ryzen chips. They're excited about what Linux can do on Ryzen's. So, Noah, what do you need to run Linux on a Ryzen system? Well, kernel 4.10 or newer is kind of the baseline. Now, Pharonix has an article that was linked to me, and we'll have it linked here in the show notes, that says that you need 4.11 to get the, AC, uh, the ALC1220 audio support. So that's if you have that uh, Realtek audio card and you want to get support for the AELC 1220 codec, 
then you need to find yourself a distribution that has at least kernel 4.11 on it. And I'd probably suggest Entargos. So bottom line, am I going to buy this or am, am I going to stick with Intel or am I going to buy a Ryzen chip? Should you? Here's my answer. If money is tight and you can sacrifice a small bit of performance to save a tremendous amount of coin, and you're willing to take a small risk from a company that's been around for a very long time that has a track record of delivering quality products on a budget, then go ahead and get yourself a Ryzen. Now, if you're running a mission-critical machine and every last bit of performance, regardless of the cost, if that's what's important to you, stick with Intel. Am I going to buy one? I gotta be honest with you. I have very little need for a Ryzen 1800X, but if you guys are interested in what a Linux rig can do on a 1700, I would be willing to throw a machine to see how it stacks up as a daily driver. So let me know, asknoshow.com, post on the forum, send an email, carry a pigeon, I don't care. Uh, I'd be up for putting something together. Asus actually has a pretty decent little board. It's uh, it's available on Amazon for like 99 bucks. Um, we'll have a link for that in the show note. I believe it's called the B350, the Asus B350. It's a Ryzen board. $450 for a high-performance computer CPU motherboard. That's, that's actually pretty cool. All right, let's see here. Uh, who do we have here? Uh, Jeremy, Florida. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How can we help? Hey, Noah. Um, great to be on the show. I've got a question about a free PBX failover. Um, I set up a couple customers with free PBX. They really, mm-hmm. really, really like it. But the one thing they always ask me is, so what happens when free PBX PBX breaks, and I've seen high availability. I'm not sure how that works. I didn't know if maybe I could set up a cloud instance of free PBX to fail over to, or a very simple asterisk server that would, you know, forward to their phones. Just curious what your thoughts are on failover on free PBX. There are two ways that we have to deal with failing over on a PBX system, and I'll be the first to tell you that I actually suffered a PBX failure last week. Um, and so I have thought a lot about this. Now, the two ways that we have to deal with failure are incoming and outgoing. What happens if we have incoming calls and they're not able to be delivered for whatever reason? What happens if we have outgoing calls and they're not able to be delivered for whatever reason? There's two different things we have to solve to fix that. Let's start with the incoming side. When a call comes into our service provider, let's say we're using FlowRoute. Inside of FlowRoute, we specify a path for that call to take. So when a call comes in on a given uh, ID, so in our case, our 1-800 number for all-to-speed customer care, 1-866-280-1433. Somebody calls customer care, and we have to send that call that comes into FlowRoute to our IP PBX server. So we have the IP address for that server inside of FlowRoute. Inside of FlowRoute, we can also specify a failover location. So if that server is not able to accept that call for whatever reason, Somebody calls 1-866-280-1433 to have, I don't know, an own cloud server, something like that set up. If it can be delivered to our IP server, it then fails over to my personal cell phone. So one way or another, I'm able to take the call. That's how we solve incoming uh, failover. Now, the second thing we have to solve is outgoing failover. What happens if we go to place a call and, again, our provider isn't available? Well, inside of Asterix or Free PBX, under the Connections tab, under Routes, you can specify... Uh, the order of trunks that you want it to dial. So, for example, I might have flow route as my primary trunk, and I might have Vitality as a backup. If uh, if flow route isn't available, it automatically determines that, and it will automatically let my outgoing call complete over Vitality. 
So hopefully that's 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 how I would go about setting up a backup. And of course, you can you can expand. You know, you could put maybe four providers for an outgoing. Maybe you have two IP PBX servers, and your failover route, rather than being a cell phone, would be the second PBX server, and then maybe the third failover if that doesn't work as a cell phone, something like that. So you can kind of expand that out. But that's generally kind of the way I would go with it. All right, shifting gears. <clears throat> so my first disclaimer. The Ask Noah show currently does not have a sponsor. So everything I'm about to say is from my own experience. Nothing more, nothing less. And this is not a comprehensive list of every single feature offered by all the various providers I'm about to discuss. However, I've had a lot of feedback coming in about VPNs and VPSs. Now, in episode one, we talked about what a VPN or a private network is. Quick refresher, it's an encrypted way to send all of your traffic over the Internet privately. But what is a VPS? And more importantly, do you need a VPS? Last week, I spent a day rebuilding uh, my PBX instance because I suffered a host failure from my, VP, uh, from my VPS provider. So I thought this week, we need to have a heart-to-heart about VPS providers. Now, here's a little history for you. A few years ago, we reached a point in computing where we kept building more powerful computers, but the majority of people didn't need any more power. So if you worked for an engineering firm or a scientific research facility, you were probably happy that you now had available to you two terabytes of RAM. You were probably thrilled that Dell was making a $10,000 laptop that had 16 gigs of onboard video memory. But for the majority of us uh, normal web browsing folk, that stuff's ridiculous and unnecessary. You know, honestly, 4 gigs of RAM, 8 gigs of RAM, more than enough for what most people are doing. If you're going to run some VMs, I could see 16 gigs, 24 gigs, maybe 32. But basically, we built computers that were more powerful and more capable than most people needed them to be. So what did we do? We took our big, powerful computers and we chopped them up into tiny little pretend computers that actually lived physically on the big, powerful computer. And these became known as virtual computers. Or if they were servers, we called them virtual servers. That's how we got that. In other words, you might have one physical box, but you would have 10 different operating systems installed all running at the same time. Now, is this really handy? Because it lets, let's, let's say my Nextcloud instance, if that server crashes and it's a pretend server, it's a little virtual server on this big server, it doesn't take my access point controller with it because both of those are running effectively as two little pretend servers. But Noah, if the big server crashes, then it takes all of your little pretend servers with it. And oh, by the way, I don't need any more than one or two little pretend servers, so why am I paying for this big, powerful machine just to run one or two little pretend servers? Ah, welcome to the cloud. Providers in the past couple of years have sprung up right and left to offer really, 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 really cheap little pretend servers, known on the Internet as virtual private servers, because it's a private server to you, but it is a virtual server that exists on a, on a big actual server. And we commonly abbreviate those virtual private servers, VPSs. How cheap? Well, really cheap. And over the years, I have used a bunch of them. So well, I'm not going to claim this is an exhaustive overview. It's definitely going to help you get started. And if you don't currently have a VPS provider, uh, you might decide you want one after this segment. Now, we are going to start at the bottom of the list. We're going to start and talk about the VPS that you should never use for anything ever. Full stop. 
And then I'm going to tell you why you might want to check them out. Cloudatcost.com is probably the worst VPS provider out there. If your server stays up for two weeks, you should be impressed. If it stays up for a month, I would consider it newsworthy. If you're lucky, the first day that you purchase this VPS, you'll actually be able to use it because it will take so long to provision, if it provisions. And this is, of course, assuming that their control panel is functioning, which is, <laughs> depending on the day, 50-50, you kind of take your chances. And once you get logged in, good luck to actually being able to deploy the server on the data center of your choice. Because usually what happens is you'll log in and it will give you an option for more, but you, you can't actually actually choose any other data center. So you just get one choice. Additionally, as for operating systems, it seems that varies day by day depending on what data center is available. So usually some form of Linux is available, but depending on what data center you're on, your your options may be limited or you might just be able to deploy anything at all. I know what you're saying. Wow, Noah, that's, that's, that's the worst endorsement of a server ever. And why are we even talking about if it's that bad? Well, here's the really kind of cool thing about cloud at cost. Their, their pricing structure is kind of interesting. You pay one time a fee, and it's not a terrible fee, and you get the server for life. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's got to be really, really, really expensive, right? No. It's like 18 bucks, and you'll get 512 mega RAM, uh, two public IPs, 10 gigs of SSD storage. And again, I'm not suggesting that you put anything on here you remotely care about. In fact, I'm not even suggesting you necessarily try this. It's a terrible plan, and I've had a lot of pain trying to use this server. I, I actually I used it for my Quasso Core, which is why it goes down literally every single week because their servers basically make it maybe 48, 72 hours. I use it for a web server that stores like my bookmarks so I can get to the rest of the sites I visit, you know, often. And I have uh, like some Apache redirects on there. Uh, and I, I think we have our old company database that I don't really care about. But just in case I ever decide I would like to get data off of it, I have a server that I could just accept that I need to spend a week to get it started up and then I could get stuff off of it. Better than setting it up from scratch. For those kind of things, it's not too bad. But it's a terrible service provider. Nobody should use it. Right above cloud at cost is Linode. Now, Linode is really popular, and I do like Linode for one reason, and one reason only, and that is that they offer Arch, so I can install Arch. And there are some, from time to time, certain applications that run really, really well on Arch in the cloud. And so it's kind of nice to be able to have a presence and a quick way to spin that up. The two or three times I tried to use them for a client, they, ha they used this modified Linux kernel, and it prevented me from installing the application I needed. And so I gave up. And frankly, for a company that makes so much money off the backs of the open source community, they have an awful lot of Macs they drag around to, track sh uh, to uh, um, trade shows. So there's that, if that's worth anything to you. I also find their spin-up process to be ridiculous. First, I have to create a server, and then I have to... Well, first I have to create, like, an instance, and then I have to name the instance, and then I can start the server, and then I can deploy an operating system. It's like this, like, 10-step process. It's ridiculous. Okay, Honorable mention is SixSync. Now, do they have the best pricing? Not really. Do they have data centers all over the world? Not exactly. So why am I mentioning them? Well, they were the first VPS company I ever worked with that was able to get some very special software that wouldn't run on any other VPS. And I think it's because back at that time, every VPS was using these customized kernels. And they were one of the first places to, where I installed CentOS, I actually got CentOS. They're just really cool people. They have really great support. They have uh, they get a solid mention, even if there's nothing I can point to that particularly stands out over a bunch of other VPS providers. 
Also, an honorable mention is the Google Virtual Servers or Google VPS, which despite having – I have two servers on their platform and I can barely figure out how to log into their system and find the server that I have, much less do anything on it like, you know, find out what OS it's running or log into the console. So if you want to fight through the worst VPS interface known to man, it seems like uh, – it seems to be reliable because I have – my uh, I have a, a Zermo instance that we use at our company, and uh, I have that running on uh, on the Google VPS. They had some sort of one click deployment thing, and I just I was lazy when I went to set it up for production, so I used it. I don't really like it. Uh, it's priced well enough, I guess. So it, it's so convoluted, it, it just makes it impossible for me to really consider it for anything serious. But um, it's not been a bad experience. Again, one eight five five four five zero six six two four one eight five five four five zero Noah. Let's go to Eric. Eric is in Indiana. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Thanks for taking my call. It's good to be back on the show. Fantastic. How can we help so, today? Um, first, yeah, first I just want to give a quick shout-out to members of the community that helped spin up the Mastodon server. I think it was Mike yes. and Greg. They did awesome work this weekend, so thanks, guys. I'm um, for doing that. Anyway, I just want to throw that in there. So, um, yeah, we're going to talk about that towards the end of the program, but they did a great job. Awesome. Awesome. Can't wait to hear it. Um, so my question is about, you know, like a lot of people, I have a lot of media, like photos and videos of my family and other things that I have that I want to keep back up, you know, in the same place. So at my house, I run an open media vault server on a server in the basement. So that's good for local, you know, storage. But, of course, I'm kind of paranoid, and what if that server dies? I want to put them out somewhere off-site as well. And so I have, you know, storage on Amazon S3. I have a DigitalOcean droplet with NextCloud and a Snap package that I'm running. But I'm wondering if there's a way I can use something like R-Sync, but use R-Sync, like, in a certain time of night when nobody's online so I don't, like, hog all the bandwidth of, like, a cron job that runs, like, 24 hours a day. If, say, you know, members of my family are trying to go online, they see that the bandwidth is horrible. So I didn't know if there's a way I can do, like, our thing on a scheduled setting or if you had any more recommendations for that. Yeah, you can absolutely do our sync on a scheduled setting. In fact, I think our sync would be fairly useless without the ability to schedule it. And essentially, there is an rsync script that I use. It's just kind of my go-to generic script. And what it does is it compares two directories. And the first time, it will obviously make a complete copy. And then after that, it will look for changes. And then sync the changes over. And I also specify the flag to delete things. So if I delete things on the source, it deletes it on the on the backup. So I'm not I'm not constantly, you know, building up uh, data that I don't need. And I'll link that R sync uh, uh, script in the show notes for you. And that should that should be able to help you out. And then yeah, you basically uh, cron tab tack e and uh, specify the path to the script that that you're running. The only downside I see for this is you said you're using it for family members. Well, no, it's like my media, so like family, oh, okay. my, you know, videos of my kids or stuff. So it's it's all my my family. I got not you. For other people, yeah. I got you. Yeah, the reason I the reason I was going to say that was because obviously, if you the if for our sync to work, it out the machine has to obviously be online, right? Um, but yeah, I I think that's what I would do. I would I'll I'll link that script for you, and then I would just put that into the uh, I would just put that into like a I I create a directory called scripts. And then I put all of the scripts I, I might need into that directory, and then I would just go into cron tab tacky and specify a specific time, middle of the night, whenever, and uh, and then have it kick off that script and have it run. Um, Matt is in 
Oh, there we go. Why is that not working? Matt is in Maryland. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. How you doing? Excellent. How can we help today? Well, I just got a brand new NUC, Intel NUC, with an i3 processor. Got it on Thursday. Put Ubuntu on it. It ran great. No problems for two solid days. Turn it on on Sunday. No audio out of the HDMI port. Tried four other distributions with Nuke and Pig. None of them can get audio out of it. But you had audio to begin with, right? I had audio to begin with. Well, I've tried over HDMI. I've tried over DisplayPort to HDMI to my TV. And I can't get any audio, period, on any distribution. I've tried Ubuntu. I've tried Fedora, OpenSUSE, Solus, and um, Manjaro. Nothing yeah, Manjaro would have been your would have been your best shot. Would you know the latest kernel you tried? The yeah, I'm on four ten. Okay, I would try if you if uh, is uh, I guess I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think Arch or Ant- Antegros has um, has at least four dot eleven, if not four dot twelve. Which contains, uh, we were just talking about that for the, uh, for the Ryzen. I know they made some improvements for some of the Realtek audio chips. I guess without knowing specifically what NUC you're on, I guess I couldn't tell you what, uh, what, chi- what, um, what kernel you need. It is, it is the newest i3 Cobby Lake NUC. Okay. It is running, um, it is running a NVMe Samsung uh, 256 NVMe drive with uh, 8 gigs of RAM. Okay. Well, I tell you what, uh, I what, what I'll do is I tell you what I will put you back on. Um, I'm going to put you back on hold, and what I'll do is if you can give those details to Sarah, our call screener, she'll pick up and grab those details. And what I'll do is I will reach out to a couple of the people in the community that uh, we know a lot of people that have similar hardware, and I will find out for you exactly how to fix that particular problem, or if there's a fix, or if there's a workaround, and then I will get back to you. And thanks a lot. We really appreciate the call. Jeff is calling from Ohio. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. How's it going? Pretty good. How can we help today? Uh, well, I just recently picked up a server. Um, I'm looking to get into Linux system administration. Um, and I know that I want to virtualize. I'm not sure if I want to use uh, QMU and boxes or if I want to use KVM. But I, I have a couple smaller projects that I want to do. But I'm looking for something that will actually... Um, teach me a lot about how Linux works, uh, just a project type thing. Do you have any ideas for that? And uh, where would I start? Do you know? I, I do. I have a, I saw, my first general piece of advice is, it's kind of a weird thing, but it was, it was a piece of advice that was given to me, and I think it's, it really has helped me. And that is, try to think, even if you don't really understand, try to think about how things work. So when you click on something and you play an audio file, try to envision what has to happen for that to happen. Okay, VLC is running. So to draw that, what is that using? Well, it's using X because X is drawing the, you know, the window system. And, and then what is it sending it to? Well, it's sending it to Pulse Audio, and then Pulse Audio is sending it out. You, you know, you start to kind of piece this together. You know, what are the various components that make something happen? Because that way, a lot of Linux administration is troubleshooting. A lot of Linux administration is understanding where in this complicated chain something failed. And the way that you get to be good at that is knowing in your head 
before you ever look at the thing, when somebody starts telling you a problem, this isn't working. I, I, I can't get X to work. I can't – when I load a page – you know the 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 thing spins immediately. Your head should start going. Well, obviously, it's not loading the page. If he's connected and he's he's able to ping out, then it's obviously something DNS because it's not resolving. You you kind of go through this troubleshooting workflow, and the way you get to be good at that troubleshooting workflow is kind of having an understanding, you know, or, or constantly thinking about how that machine works. As far as practical tips, the Linux Bible is a great place to start. Um, it, it is it it very clearly walks you through how to do a lot of the system administration stuff. Linux Academy is a great place to go. Um, you can go over there and they have the nugget size tutorials that you can go in and, and learn how to do specific tasks. One thing is create problems for yourself and then solve them. So, for example, set up a file server for yourself. And you might say, I don't need a file server. Set it up anyway. Set up uh, – we're going to talk a little bit later when I get to the end of the um, VPS stuff. Setting up a VPS for yourself – Something like a web server. I have a web server that I use to just get links. So I have all of the links that I visit every single day, and I have that sitting on a web server. It was one of the first servers I set up. Now, it doesn't serve a huge practical purpose, but what it, it did a couple of things. One is it taught me how to set up a server remotely over SSH. It taught me how to set up uh, a, a web server and how to secure it, and then it taught me how often web servers are attacked and how to fix that. So you can get a lot of... Uh, you can get a lot of a lot of miles off of just creating problems for yourself and solving them. The other thing is too, is I've always found that problems that scratch a personal itch are you you solve them much better. So if you can find things that you personally want to solve, you're always going to be better with that. I'm going to butcher your name and I'm sorry, sir, but is it Eugenie from Russia? Welcome to the Ask Noah show. How are you? Hello there. Happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks for calling in. How can we help? Well, uh, I have a USB 3 problem for my laptop, which is HP uh, ProBook. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I don't know, uh, I like sometimes using USB 3 devices on it. And from time to time, when I do this, the USB port crashes and nothing but reboot helps me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I need to highlight that it happened to me for every distro I use like Ubuntu-based, Debian, Arch-based, but for gentle. Maybe due to the fact that you need to compile your... <laughs> maybe due to the fact that you need to compile your kernel. Yeah. Um, however, I just can't find any reasonable way to fix it in any way at all. That's strange. Yeah, I, uh, so I have had hit... I've had... I've had a lot of hit and miss with uh, with USB C. Um, we bought uh, we bought a USB C power adapter for the shop. That was going to be this universal thing that has worked on like less than ten percent of the computers we've used it on. We bought these uh, USB C hubs that we were going to use, and those are hit or miss. Chris was telling me when I got here that he's had hit or miss luck with a lot of the USB stuff. You know, I think a a big pro or a big uh, solution might be for a lot of people. We may just have to wait it out until the support gets to be a little bit better. It gets to be a little bit more prolific, and more people are scratching itches. I'm sorry. The problem is with USB three, not C. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's I, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. USB three. Man, that's strange. I don't think I've ever had yeah. an issue with USB three. And you're sure the did it work on Windows? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, it did. And I have never yeah. actually tried running Windows for a long time on this machine, but whatever. Uh, does if it you if you work on gentle flawlessly for some years? Yeah, but it doesn't work on any of the other distros, huh? 
Uh, the problem uh, persists on any any other district except Gento. And well, wow. from it because I I didn't like compiling things, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, that is really interesting. Well, I tell you what. Well, here's what I'm gonna. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I will uh, give me one second here. Let me pull you back up. Sorry about that. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, the mask tells me that he see died cleaning up, and um, then Ford stops stops responding. Rakai in the chat room suggests and, uh, you can find actually some bug some bug reports uh, online, but anything they suggest is just rebooting. Mm. Yeah, that's not that's not a really great long term solution. You know, Rakai in the in the chat room says that he would check D message. And see if it, and see if it crashes. If there's any relevant information there, and I guess that's that's kind of what you're saying is that you've looked and you found a bug. I'm going to do the same thing I I did with uh, with the previous gentleman. I'll put you back on hold, and I'll have Sarah take your particulars. There are just some questions I don't think I'm going to be a- be able to answer in a two minute radio call, but uh, we'll put you back on hold, and I will hook you up with uh, with the support and see if we can we can get a little further. Uh, Samil is calling from Mexico. Hi, Samil. How are you? Am I pronouncing that right, Hi. Samil? Uh, I'm fine. Hi, sir. How are you? Yeah. I'm fine. Uh, I want to ask, um, well, you know that my primary PC is a Raspberry Pi. You knew it before the show. I told you in the Telegram chat we have. Um, but I missed a lot of the Linux uh, advancements. I lost, uh, for example, Ubuntu Mate, mm-hmm. Ubuntu Mate, uh, 20.04. I missed um, many versions of Manjaro, many versions of, uh, uh, many versions how, how... of Deepin. Right. How can, uh, how can I help you today, sir? Well, I want to ask you, which is the best build I can do for a desktop PC okay. with Linux-friendly hardware? Got, got it. Got it. So uh, what I would suggest, actually, th- so this is going to be the first time I'm going to recommend this. I would suggest Ryzen. Um, you know, th- I think if you're looking to build, uh, if you're looking to build your own PC, if you're looking to, to you know, t- to build a Linux specific PC, and you're especially if you're trying to do it on a budget, I think Ryzen is probably not a bad way to go, especially if you're looking, uh, you know, to keep the cost down. I think that uh, if you can afford it, if you're, if you're going to go if you're going to stay in that $200 price range for the processor, I guess I'd probably then you could just stick with i5 and just do a, a generic i5 uh, build. But if you want to get a little bit more performance and you can go up to like the 1700 or something like that, I think I would. I think I would check out Ryzen. All right, I'm going to take. Uh, let's go to Slith in uh, in Washington D.C. Am I pronouncing that right, Slith? Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Yes, you got it right. You got it right. Good to hear from you. Uh, outstanding. How can I help I was today? Yeah, with regarding Ryzen, I was just wondering if it would be something good to use if you're running Blender or DeGamp or some other video or graphics kind of program. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think for, for, for anything gaming-related or anything parallel processing-related, and I would include video editing in that, um, I, yes, I do think Ryzen is, is, would be a great choice. And 
I would be, if I do this 1700, if I get some feedback, people tell me to do it, I will definitely uh, let you know how it works under Lightworks, and I'll edit all of the videos for a couple weeks and, and see how that goes. I want to get back to this VPS thing. So we talked about some of the bad VPSs. Now I want to get to some of the good ones. A newcomer to the game is Amazon LightSail, and this has been a pretty intriguing product for me or service for me because their pricing seems to be on par with other VPS providers. And uh, like other VPS providers, they also offer one-click deployment of apps. So you have magic scripts. So you can deploy the app you want to deploy, and uh, and it will just uh, show up for you. Now, some people uh, do foolish things, and uh, who am I to judge? So if you want to use a one-click deployment and use magic scripts, you go right ahead. <laughs> now, because it's an extension of AWS, it's a natural choice if you think that you're going to be scaling up huge because you're already on their platform. And so, you know, the control, you know, is already there, and it's it's very clearly laid out. The first time I tried to use Amazon AWS, I was extremely confused. And in fact, I wound up with an AWS instance for like three months that I had paid for that I didn't even know how to get to because I was, it just confused me. LightSail is the total opposite. It's just like any other VPS. You log in. It's very clear. You get started. You get, uh, you get your server up and running. Now, here's what I don't like. You get your choice of, for operating systems, Amazon Linux and Ubuntu. And well, that's it. You get your choice of Amazon, Linux, and Ubuntu. At least that's what I can find. No CentOS, no Arch, no SUS, no Debian. Seriously, guys, you know, I mean, and again, maybe there's a magic button that I'm supposed to click, and there's more options, but all I see when I log into Amazon LightSail is Amazon, Linux, and Ubuntu. So I guess uh, as far as your data centers go, there seem you seem to be able to choose from zones in the East Coast, and I believe they're all in Virginia. So if you uh, if you don't want your VPS in Virginia, no server for you. Um. So, yeah, if you can deal with your server being in Virginia and you want one of those two operating systems, I guess you could check out Amazon LightSail. Now, <clears throat> my three favorite VPSs. First is Voltaire. Voltaire is a company that I could actually afford to do some more business with. And I might in the near future. They offer reasonable pricing. They have a decent control panel. But the thing that sets them apart from every other VPS provider that I've ever used, they let you upload a custom ISO. And that's a game changer for me because it means that I can run things like Asterisk Now, which is an incredible pain in the rear to set up from scratch. Better yet, I can trust, I can just point it the download URL to Voltaire and it will go out and talk server to server and download that ISO into my control panel. And then I have the ability to deploy it out. And they offer snapshots. They offer all of the other things you'd expect from a VPS, a web-based console, etc. They're a great company. I have a few things hosted there, and I've always been happy with them. And if I needed a place to run a custom ISO, it's basically my only choice. I do have to note, though, my PBX system was hosed last week, and it was because they, Voltaire suffered a host failure, and I had to rebuild it from scratch. Now, I had a support ticket open, and they did tell me that if I had enabled their backup service, the backups would have been stored on a different host node, and I could have recovered. But, you know, didn't have time for that, so <clears throat> I spent a whole day rebuilding it. OVH. Now, this is where I park my long-term servers. And that, I'm, I'm not kidding. It takes sometimes over an hour before the VPS is actually ready to use. They don't have recurring billing, which means that I have to decide how long I want to buy the server. And then I have to remember at the end of that time to renew it. There's also um, There was also like this kerfluffle of them not using a stock Ubuntu, and they were using like a modified version, modified kernel. But I've never personally had an issue with it. So uh, to me, where OVH excels is price. They start their SSDs, VPSs at $349 a month, 
and that's the cheapest I found anywhere without sacrificing reliability. I've never had an issue with an OVH server going down. I've never – and I've got a couple of them. Um, they also understand that uh, not everyone cares about SSDs. So, for example, my Unify controller that controls my access points, I don't care how fast it loads. It writes the log file a couple of times a day, and I log into it like once a month to check on things. But really, it's a pretty passive part of a, a server. So what do you get? Like for 9 bucks a month, I think, it's you can get a high availability Ceph cluster, 25 gigs uh, – with 25 gigs, 2 gigs of memory – and if you need a bit more bang out of your buck and you don't mind if you and you don't mind a spinning disk then they have that option for you. Now I personally don't have any of their spinning rust. All of mine are the uh, $3.49 jobbies and it's 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 not a place to do testing. It's very difficult to do reloading if you have to wipe the server and reload it because it takes a while for them to set up, to get the server set up and reloaded. So if you're comparing it one on one to other providers it probably isn't worth it. When you start getting into the fifty, sixty, hundred dollar virtual servers, at the cost difference, the, the cost difference does add up if you wind up with enough servers. Um, but for playing and testing, I stay away from it because you know if you just have a machine that you want to spin up for a little bit and check out, or you want to make a change to it, or you're trying something, it's not the place. It's it's only a place to park servers long term. Finally, last and last, not but not least, and I'm and I I, I have to remind everyone that nobody is paying for this program. So this is all just my experience. Uh, but last but not least is DigitalOcean. You know, in fact, not only are they not paying for this, but as far as I know, DigitalOcean and even Chris didn't know I was going to talk about this today. So everything I'm telling you is based on experience that has, and, and that alone. But DigitalOcean is the first place I go when I want to try something new because I can get a machine up and running in like 30 seconds. Linode is not that fast. Voltaire is close, but it asked me too many questions. DigitalOcean, with their one click, uh, I, I, I click once to click the size, I click once to choose my SSH key, and then I create it. And 30 seconds later, I have a server, and I'm logged in, and I'm getting work done. And I might not leave it there if it's not something I'm going to be using constantly, and if it's something that is not a very important server, and I, I just need to park it for a while, you know, over the cost, you know, over the course of a year, I'll take $1.50 a month, sure, why not? Um, but it's definitely the place you want to be with if you're going to mess with it, if you're going to tweak it. If it's a customer's machine, there's not, it's not even a discussion. It's going to stay on DigitalOcean because one thing is we use heavily, we use is backing up to snapshots and then we send those back and forth to our customers. We automate backups and stuff like that. Um, I won't say the D word on this show that rhymes with uh, <coughs> Rashboard, but their uh, user interface is exceptional. And uh, I know that everyone complains when we talk about that on the air, but just I'll tell you what you do. If you want to find out how much their D word Rashboard that rhymes with Rashboard is, just log into Linode and see how Linode does it, and then you'll understand why we like the one on DigitalOcean. And it, it like, yeah, I don't even know. It, like, Linode, it creates, like, some idiotic name, like Linode 576521, and so if you do, like, two of them, you have no idea which one's which. It's just it's really frustrating. Okay, so now all of you guys are sitting there, and you're on all of these various websites that I talked about, and you're sitting there saying, I want to have a VPS. I know where I want to have my VPS, but what the heck do I do with it? Well... I'm glad you asked, because this week in our Newbies Corner, I have a few suggestions for you what you can do with a VPS. Now, if you don't have clue on where to start with setting up a server, I'd suggest starting with a basic web server. First of all, it's easy to set up. It's one command, yum, uh, yum install HTTPD if you're using CentOS or Red Hat. And then you just drop an HTML template into the web directory and you have a working web server. It's that simple. And I have a step-by-step -step tutorial that we're going to link in the show notes. 
But you're asking yourself, Noah, why would I want a web server? What do I do with it? I don't really have a, anyone that wants to drive web traffic. Well, I have a basic web server that I just throw links on for sites that I visit every day. And I know that probably sounds silly to you, to some of you, but I have uh, – that website is, is my homepage on every computer I have. And so, for example, one of the things I do every single day is I check the uh, Ask Noah subreddit. One of the things I do every day is I check my bank account. I check uh, Amazon to see what orders are showing up that day. That, it's a useful thing to actually have all of that stuff just kind of linked to a website. And then if I sit at a public computer, I can just go to that website and uh, – and pull pull up you know whatever sites I need and they, you know a lot of like the some of the sites that have you log in they, it's buried you go to their main site and then you click on this and then you go to that menu and you click on this and I just link the final page so it's kind of a useful thing to have and I that was one of the first servers I set up and like I said it taught me a lot of things not just about Linux um, not just about Linux administration but about security uh, a couple other things you could do WordPress blog you could set up. Uh, you know, a blog and, and write about your life or write about something that you're doing about technology or write about setting up a, a WordPress blog. Quasal uh, Core is another really popular thing. Very simple to set up, very easy, very straightforward. And what Quasal Core will do for you is allow you to chat with us in the Jupiter Broadcasting chat room at irc.geekshed.net. And you can participate live during one of these shows. So I had a lot of time to read the chat room. All right, Real Talk, guys. I have to take a moment to thank somebody who has been a really big help on this show. My friend and video editor, Mr. Rikai, who has worked with me for hours setting up art assets, setups, intro, who edits the show every week. He gets it out. He puts it up with – he. the other thing is he puts up with my uh, <clears throat> peculiar uh, and weird mandates for this radio show. And it would seem in episode one when I was thanking everyone responsible for bringing the show to you, he was left out. And so today we're going to write that wrong. So, Rikai, Mr. Beard, your Google Foo is righteous, your beard is glorious, and your dedication to this program does not go unnoticed. So thank you, sir, for all you do for the Ask Noah Show. Mm-hmm. Following up from last week's episode, I just want to touch on Mastodon. A caller brought it up, too, while we were on the air. I asked if anyone would be interested in a community Mastodon instance, and the community in the Ask Noah Telegram group, which is telegram.asknoahshow.com, has worked really, really hard to get us an, a, a, a Mastodon group up. And you can join that at linuxrocks.online. So I'd love to connect with you, linuxrocks.online. And you can join a Mastodon group that is centered around Linux and the Ask Noah Show and Jupiter Broadcasting and all of the things. This is a nice community server where other Linux nerds hang out. Follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. Make sure to check out the Ask Noah dashboard at asknoahshow.com and stay on top of everything that we're doing here over at the Ask Noah Show. Again, that number, 1-855-450-6624. Please give that out to anyone that you run into in the wild that's having trouble with Linux, that wants to get started with Linux. We are going to be live next Monday, so a week from today. Again, 6 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Pacific. And then that coming Saturday, we'll be live at Linux Fest Northwest. So we'll be streaming live again. That'll be live over the radio, 88.3 LPFM in Grand Forks and jblive.tv if you are on the interwebs. So thanks so much for being with us this week. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Now we'll be back next Monday at 6 o'clock p.m. A huge thank you to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, Rakai, our video editor, and a huge thank you to the team at Jupiter Broadcasting for setting us up with 
this amazing broadcast facility. You know, we are doing some really crazy things going all the way back to Grand Forks and then actually going out over the air. And uh, Chris did a lot to, to get all of that set up. Then we're going to be running it on a Linux Mixer next week, too. So I'll be sure to tell you about that. We hand you off to Crosspoint coming up next on 88.3 LPFM. <laughs> 